I think people or students that speak both Japanese and English has kind of a more motivation to take risks. They want to look at different alternatives. Being able to speak English, English actually opens a lot of doors because not only can they talk to different people, but they also have a lot of resources that they can just read online or learn by themselves. One thing we realize is because the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Japan is very uh, undeveloped,、um, it actually, we have to start from educating people. You're listening to the Live Work Play Japan podcast, where we talk to the most inspiring teachers, freelancers, and entrepreneurs in Japan so you can learn the secrets of their success. This time, I'll be speaking with Higun Iom about his newly opened co working and maker space in Nishiogi Kubo, named Nishiogi Place. We talked about starting a business, applying for and getting government financial support, and how to deal with the competition and succeed in your business in Japan. Well, you know, being in Japan has been basically kind of a second home for me.、Um, you know, I kind of grew up here,、uh, I spent most of my life here actually. Um, I'm originally Korean, and my family moved here when I was actually pretty young, when I was in like elementary school.、Uh, so I spent most of my kind of early years in Japan, went to high school till,、uh, and then in college, I ended up going to the US and I lived there for another two years or so.、Uh, and only, only just two years ago, I'm coming back here and starting you know, different kinds of businesses. Wow, so did you learn a lot from、uh, going to the U? The,、um, I'm guessing in the US you were studying.、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.、Mm-hmm. So did you learn a lot from that and you brought that kind of stuff back to Japan so that you could start your business here? Yeah, I think that's the really interesting kind of perspective I have where I've always kind of been kind of an outsider, even if I lived in Japan.、Um, you know, I'm nationality wise Korean, but I've lived in Japan most of my life. But I was educated in like American or Western style education. So I always never felt like I was Japanese, but I knew that Japan was a big part of me, but also wanted to do something that helps Japan move forward、mm-hmm. rather than kind of stay stagnant. Yeah. And you went to the,、um, the American school, right? Yeah, American school in Japan. Yeah. So I guess that that had a big impact on not only the fact that you're from Korea, which you know, is already in Japan still one of those、mm-hmm. hot button issues, right? Like a lot of Korean people who、yeah. are born here don't have Japanese citizenship.、Mm-hmm. But、um, then on top of that, you also went to an American school where you could get more of a, an international education. Right, right. So you know, I always tell my friends or people I meet, like, I don't really belong to any country. I just kind of belong everywhere but nowhere.、Mm. That's an interesting way of putting it as well. Because、mm-hmm. there's a, a word for people who kind of grow up in、uh, like multiple cultures or like in, in a culture where they're not、um, part of the majority, and they call it like third culture kid. Have you、yep. heard that before? Yeah, yep. And would you say that kind of applies to you? Yeah, I think, I think that is the best way to describe、uh, me. I think what's interesting about Kind of my friend groups that go to international school is they actually don't like being labeled.、Uh, they don't want to be called Americans or Japanese or whatnot. So I guess third culture kid is the best label for us. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm curious then. So you went to the United States and、uh, what did you study when you were there? 
uh, engineering. Okay, and so from your mm-hmm. engineering um, studies, you came back to Japan, and then you decided to start your business here. So why did you mm-hmm. d- choose to start in Japan? Why not? St- mm-hmm. You know, would you have maybe had more success, or it would have been easier to start a business in America, where it's a lot more uh, mm-hmm. open to entrepreneurial people? Right. So I think after my studies, I came back uh, initially actually to help my family business. So my family business is still based out in Japan. So um, I realized I needed to help out and come back. But after I came back with the lens that I've gained living in the U.S., I realized Japan really lacked entrepreneurship. Uh, They lacked things that uh, the U.S. already had, and they had a really great ecosystem for and it's something that I thought Japan needed more of and something I could be very competitive in rather than where the U.S. market is very saturated with right. entrepreneurs. That's interesting. I, I wonder as well, like if because America is very saturated with entrepreneurs and people, especially people calling themselves entrepreneurs or, or wanting mm-hmm. to get into like startup culture or building something. But right. in Japan there are also there are limitations here that aren't mm-hmm. so much about the kind of people who are here but more about how the government sees um people who are starting a business did you have any trouble with that when you were beginning yeah i think you know everyone has that where in japan when you say i'm gonna be an entrepreneur it's not the first thing people say they want to be mm. um it's you know even the statistics show that entrepreneurship is very very low among young young people in japan and it, it is an upward climb where you kind of have to prove yourself. You kind of have to keep on knocking on doors. There's not many places that kind of safeguards you. Like in the U.S., if you, you there are places you can go to, uh, get help, get funding and stuff like that. But um, I think I was very lucky and fortunate, the fact that I had my family business that I could basically use it as uh, something to grow something different. Mm, and that's really useful, right? To have a kind of a backstop a little bit. Right. So how did you um, how did you start your business? And tell me a little bit about um, this this business that you started. So you've uh, mm-hmm. started a co-working space called Nishiogi Place in mm-hmm. Nishiogi Kubo. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, tell me a little bit about how that started out. What was the the guiding force behind starting that mm-hmm. business? And and how have you been doing since you started in? Um, I think it was like November or October that you started, right? Yeah, November. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's actually a very interesting story because it never was kind of like a straight path where, you know, I came back to Japan and say, I'm going to start a co-working space. It was more of kind of a process where, um, you know, we had a, a warehouse basically for our family business and we're in the stage of moving the warehouse outside of Tokyo and we just had a chunk of land that was being underutilized. Um, so we kept on questioning, like, what do we want to do with it? The easiest option was actually just to rent it out, you know, traditional just, you know, office space and whatnot. But I think really at that trigger of coming back from the U.S. to Japan and seeing what's missing, um, I've realized really I wanted to create space for entrepreneurs to grow. So if people don't have the uh, backing of a family or someone else, then at least they can have a space that they could grow and nurture their ideas. Mm, that's really interesting because I think a lot of um, a lot of entrepreneurs in Japan do find that there isn't much support and there isn't a, a lot of um, there aren't a lot of people doing the same kind of thing they can turn to for help or or mm-hmm. figure out things. They they kind of kind of have to do it on their own and with a lot right. of people a lot of pressure on them to mm-hmm. to perform you know quite early on. 
And so how's your space been supporting those entrepreneurs? What have you been doing to sort of specifically support them and to help them out? And also, um, how have you been actually bringing people into your space? Yeah, so I think early on, one thing we realized is because the entrepreneurship ecosystem in Japan is very uh, undeveloped, um, it actually, we have to start from educating people. Um, so I tell a lot of kind of freelancers or people that have experienced entrepreneurs or experienced uh, trading their own companies that like come come to Nishogi Place and teach entrepreneurship. Uh, so there's a several entrepreneurship programs, uh, you know, uh, events that focus around actually teaching young students or you know shakaijins about what entrepreneurship is and how do you take your first step. Wow, that's really useful for, especially for, um, I think we talked about this when I uh, was there, that um, a lot of young people like in schools don't know anything about this. And they don't, they don't, obviously yeah. they're not going to learn anything about it from their teachers because most of their teachers have no idea what entrepreneurship is and they want their students to go the safe route of getting mm-hmm. into a good university and getting a stable job at a big company. Right. So how um, have you found that a lot of those um, the people coming along to those events are like you know high school students or uh, maybe university students who are trying to figure out how they can do something mm-hmm. different? Yeah, and I you know I was really surprised by that because it's both high school and university students where they realize that they don't want to do the traditional shukatsu. Mm-hmm. They don't want to go to the traditional of just you know graduating from college and then going to large corporations and working there for probably the rest of their lives. Mm. They know that they want to do something different, but they don't know how. Mm. Um, and I think for us and at the size that we operate, just even just having those events or even workshops of just teaching that, that there's an alternative route um, gives them a lot of encouragement. Yeah, it can, it can inspire them to actually take action on something that they've been wanting to do. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know you've only been in business um, with this place for five months now, but um, what have been some of the, the best things that you've done so far, like your greatest successes? And mm-hmm. what are some of the things that you tried that really just fell apart, that didn't work very well? And what did you learn mm-hmm. from those experiences? Yeah, I would say um, the best parts were, you know, I've partnered with uh, my friend Steve, uh, hosting a lot of uh, events for college students. Um, one of the programs called Sekai Creator, mm-hmm. and it's basically a nonprofit program for university students to learn about entrepreneurship. Um, for like an eight-week boot camp, they just learn the basics of like business models, uh, value proposition, and stuff like that, which really kind of gets their mind thinking uh, compared to kind of traditional schooling. So I think that was the biggest success uh, that I've seen. At f- for the short time where we've been open is just in enabling students to be inspired and actually kind of start thinking about entrepreneurship. Mm. And it's really useful too. Um, I've, uh, cause I run my workshop at your place as well. Um, mm-hmm. and mine was in English. Um, have you yeah. found that there's been, um, cause I often find with languages that a lot mm-hmm. of the entrepreneurial events are in English, partially because yeah. of how, um, perhaps speaking English opens up people's minds to the possibility of those things. Yeah. So have you found mm-hmm. that a lot of the events and a lot of the things at your space have been easier to do in English? Yeah, and I would say um, there might be a slight bias, but I think people or students that speak both Japanese and English has kind of a more motivation to take risks or they want to look at different alternatives. Being able to speak English English actually opens a lot of doors because not only can they talk to different people, but 
they also have a lot of resources that they can just read online or learn by themselves. Right. And if they only speak Japanese, then maybe the online resources, there's not quite as much. But if they speak English, I mean, you just need to go online and take a quick look at entrepreneurship, like on YouTube and on their podcasts about it. And Mm -hmm. there's so much information you could never get through all of it, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the core difference where there's more exposure, right? Um, There's a lot more English content out there about entrepreneurship or starting your own business or freelancing and it just really allows them to kind of you know accelerate their process and learning process so um i also wanted to hear what was one of the things that you have struggled with opening your business in the last um in the last five months what was one of the biggest failures i would say one of the biggest failures or the things that i struggled with which is it's also a good struggle in Mm -hmm. a sense that um, the only reason why we could really you know, invest a lot of money in renovating this place was we actually got a subsidy from the government, uh-huh. uh, from the Keizai Sangyo Show, under uh, basically supporting startups. Uh, because the Japanese government realizes that they need places and uh, spaces that kind of nurtures entrepreneurs. Um, so we applied to that. Uh, we got it. We got basically a subsidy to really push forward and invest. Uh, but doing, doing governmental work, um, getting everything right and making sure all the people are aligned, um, that has been really hard and, you know, it, it caused a lot of sleepless nights for the past few months. Wow. What does that, what do you mean? Like what happened? So, I mean, it's not kind of like a big failure in a sense, but it's just a lot of paperwork and also a lot of things that end up not working. Uh, but you have to prove. So uh, yeah, I've heard of this kind of problem before, right? Um, a friend of mine who I did a podcast on um, the entrepreneur visa is that a lot of the yeah. things that they ask, like at the beginning, is they say, "Can you give us like a brief or an outline of what you're trying to do with this money or with this right. um, with this opportunity?" Mm-hmm. And then maybe like three months later, they'll ask you again, like, has anything changed? And it probably, they, they advise you not to have changed anything because right. they want mm-hmm. you to, to kind of follow through with something when actually that's not really how entrepreneurship works, right? Yeah, You've got to yeah. adapt and change with the mm-hmm. times. And I think that was the biggest um, thing about working with the government plus entrepreneurship is, you know, the past five months, we've rapidly changed kind of how we look at the space what we do and who we work with but you know the government doesn't work like that so Mm. communicating that you know we have to be rapidly iterating uh was not the easiest and at points you know it it took some friction Mm. yeah i understand um so how have you actually been finding people to come into your space um like what Mm -hmm. have been the most effective ways to actually get your first customers in there because every new business like you need to have a constant stream of new customers coming in so that you can uh, keep Mm -hmm. the thing running so what have you been doing that's worked so really i've realized that you know we are co-working in a physical space so you know you can do all the social media you can do all the uh you know online marketing thing and we do but the most effective thing is when people actually step into our doors and actually experience the space for themselves. So we've realized working with event organizers, like even uh, like yourself, organizing events and letting people kind of just come to the space and actually see it and see themselves working there uh, has been the most kind of conversion. 
uh, mm. for us. And it's a really cool space. Like one of my favorite things about that place, like when I was walking past, I, I think I walked past the place twice when I was looking for it because <laughs> it's kind of an unassuming building, right? Like but when mm-hmm. I walked past Nishiogi Place and I looked in the window and I saw that woodworking shop that you have, I was like, yeah. oh my God, that looks so cool. I, I went, that was the first place I went into. I wanted to just look around and like stay in there all day. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's the thing about, you know, since it was an old building that we renovate, uh, from the outside, it's like, you know, it's an old building, and it's kind of unassuming that there is a co-working space inside, but I don't know, I think we kind of like that kind of branding, where it's almost kind of your secret base, mm. where it's only yours to kind of really work on, and your friends to kind of come up with your, you know, secret project uh, that turns into a successful business. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, so what do you think is changing in Japan with regards to um, entrepreneurship and starting a business here? And how could that lead uh, foreigners and people in Japan to start businesses here? Mm-hmm. So it's been very interesting because the fact that Nishiogi Place kind of exists has allowed me to talk to so many different people trying to push entrepreneurship in Japan. Um, and I think it's growing. Um, I, I definitely think... Um, I would say five, ten years ago, it was non-existent. But you see players really trying to push the envelope of what entrepreneurship means in Japan. And I don't think the solution is to like look at San Francisco or look at New York and say, like, we're going to just copy them. Mm-hmm. I think the solution would be to really find what Japan and the Japanese people do best and really you know, allow the natural form of entrepreneurship to take place here Mm. yeah because i think that um one of the things that happens a lot with um with foreigners coming to japan and and being interested in starting a business here is that they take the ideas from from startup communities around the world like in um silicon valley and also like singapore and they think that those kind of things will apply in japan but you have to have a really different approach to your business in japan as well right right yeah and I think that's a really interesting thing about Japan is it's not a traditional market where you just start, you know, plugging and playing the same ideas that worked in the U.S. or Western markets. Um, big companies have failed to come into Japan because of that. Um, I would say a good case is like Uber. Uber tried to come into Japan a few years ago. Um, they failed because there was a big friction with the taxi company. So I think foreigners coming into japan is a big catalyst and we actually need more people coming in but the foreigners and the japanese entrepreneurs need to understand they need to think deeply of the culture of japan and the business of japan right and i think the thing with uber is that they actually had a lot of friction with taxi companies around the world in all the countries Mm -hmm. they launched in right i think they had the same thing in london where um the mayor of london i think uh, or the the London boroughs made them have taxi licenses for all of their drivers, yeah. so they basically couldn't operate. But um, in the United States, like they they kind of just did it and and went ahead with it. Whereas in Japan, mm-hmm. it's it's the other way around, right? You've got to get your permissions to do things first. And right. Japan really like you know they they want to have all the paperwork in order. And so without mm-hmm. that, they're just like, no, you can't do this. And they're like, you know, maybe they wanted to, maybe they had. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the stuff set up to do so. But the only mm-hmm. thing that they've been able to do here is Uber Eats because it doesn't require um, mm-hmm. a taxi license. Yeah. And one thing I've realized, kind of the behavior of the Japanese uh, business culture, is that there's already very big companies in Japan. Like, you know, you have one of the biggest companies that, you know, basically are in the top in the world. And 
what I realized is Japan, if you want to be successful, you, you, you need to develop a business model that works with big companies. So you want to be working with big companies or be a service provider or a product provider to those big companies in Japan. Mm. So they can help you navigate some of those um, difficult, like legislative or um, right. uh, mm-hmm. what are they called? Um, restrictions that maybe they yeah. have in Japan, they might not have in other mm-hmm. places. Yeah, yeah. I think another good example of this in in the same space as you is um is that WeWork partnered with SoftBank. I don't think they yep. would have been able to launch in Japan mm-hmm. if they had just gone like, yeah, we're going to take over Japan, and then they you know mm-hmm. they would have had so many troubles, especially being in something like a real estate industry like you are. That yeah. that has a lot of you know, there's a lot of incumbent industries there, right? So mm-hmm. the the landlords in Japan are incredibly strict and very um, can can be difficult to work with because they're a lot of them are um, older and have uh, maybe older opinions about things like um, co-working spaces and right. they maybe don't understand the value of it mm-hmm. because it's a new thing, mm-hmm. um, and so you know, you have to figure out how to work with those people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think WeWork was very smart about how they came into Japan. Um, you know, if they didn't have SoftBank's backing, it might have been a very different story. But because they had that, now they actually, like, you know, customers are coming to them. Uh, big real estate companies want WeWork at their buildings. So it's really about finding their, your right customers. Maybe you, as kind of a freelancer or entrepreneur, might not be able to get deals with, like, huge companies like SoftBank. But, you know, there are still mid, uh, small to medium-sized companies in Japan that need a ton of different solutions. But it's finding the right customers in Japan that's the hardest in Japan. Yeah, and I'm sure that um, the fact that that has worked out so well for WeWork has really helped you as well in sort of indirect mm-hmm. way, right? That people yeah. are becoming more open to this idea of co-working mm-hmm. and working in spaces that aren't just like office spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's probably been kind of a net benefit for your company and getting people to sort of see the the value of going to a co-working space like yours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely validated the market. Um, if it wasn't for WeWork, co-working would still be kind of a very... Uh, niche market in Japan mm. and it does seem like it is still a little bit niche like there's still mm-hmm. it's still a difficult thing like I've, I've never really understood how a co-working space can um, make enough money because if it's mm-hmm. an office space like businesses who use that space can kind of justify it as a as a company expense but for me as a freelancer you know I've I've been um, a sort of part-time member of a few different co-working mm-hmm. spaces and I've always found that the for a single you know, a solopreneur like just doing my own mm-hmm. business it's never really been worth it for me to um to pay for a co-working space so right. i wonder like what kind of people um is your co-working space really looking for like what are the ideal and how do you actually reach those ideal people because mm-hmm. like you said you bring some people in for events but maybe if those people are like students or university or uh, university students or um, maybe young entrepreneurs who are just starting out, they might not have the money to justify paying for a, um, a co-working mm-hmm. space. Yeah, and that's actually the biggest problem with co-working spaces, I, I would say everywhere, is that their primary customers, you know, whether you're a WeWork or other kind of co-working space, they want to kind of pronounce themselves as a hotbed for entrepreneurs, but their main customer base, their paying customer base, is actually large corporations. Uh, that want satellite offices or want office space. Yeah, um, that's what kind of pays the bills. 
Um, so that's really kind of the target of trying to get companies to use it as basically their office space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to add to the value to that is, you know, you allow freelancers or entrepreneurs to really uh, make it kind of a hip or new uh, kind of place. So how are you doing that at Nishiyogi Place then? Are you Do you have like different tiers for maybe mm-hmm. for people who are sort of makers or something, they want to come in and use the, the woodworking shop or the, the mm-hmm. 3D printers that you have. And then mm-hmm. there are companies who maybe want to come in and just have a place for mm-hmm. for their office. So like, how are you actually um, you know, making that value proposition work for the kind of community that you want to develop there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of the two approach we're doing is, you know, uh, the customer segment of just drop-in, uh, kind of casual users that just come in and out. Um, and also kind of the company users of, um, one example is um, Brian, actually, um, Second Story Coffee and Storyline Coffee. We have two coffee companies that use our makerspace to roast coffee beans and actually uh, R&D their um, coffee. And that's actually just a company uh, within Nishiogi Place. Um, so that's kind of a very uh, stable source of income for us. And also you have our kind of drop-in or student uh, kind of customer base that just kind of comes in and out. Yeah, and that's really cool as well that you can you can kind of host like one-man shops or like a few, uh, and it, I, I was in there the last week um, looking at that uh, coffee roaster with, um, with mm-hmm. Brian. And I think that's a really cool thing that you can have people come in and actually, I, I don't know if there's like, a, um, I'm sure you do like a different price tier for him so that mm-hmm. he can actually use it as a, a base for his, you know, roasting business. Yeah, yeah. And that's really what kind of we visualized that when we were trying to come up with this space where we want to keep it open so people, whether you're an entrepreneur or student or whatnot, can come in whenever they want to. But we still want to attract stable businesses that you know, literally put their machines in or whatever assets they have so they operate it as a normal office. Mm. Um, and I think that's very interesting because um, there's collaborations between them mm. um, where young entrepreneurs that have different ideas talk to more established businesses and they're like, yeah, let's try an event or let's try this idea. Mm. Um, That's kind of the goal that I'm trying to get to. Um, And I wonder as well, because of that's, that's, it can be quite unstable to have um, that kind of, you know, you need to have a rotation of people coming in so that, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe there'll be some students who will do something for a few months and then you Mm -hmm. have those, um, those few stable companies. So does it really help that, um, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure if this is um, how it works, but that your, um, family's business is also kind of Mm -hmm. helping you, uh, back this with, you know, helping you with the space. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and have you found that it's been difficult to kind of make the, make the space pay for itself? Yeah. And I would say, the reason why it's still um, running is really because of the investment that uh, uh, my family business put into and also the government subsidy we got. Mm. Um, that allows us to be more experimental with kind of the events and stuff that we do. Um, it's not really uh, because we don't have to worry about rent or other expenses that other co-working spaces do. Um, that's why we're kind of really using it as uh, like, you know, what is our mission statement? Our mission statement is to help entrepreneurs. So we should be hosting events and allowing them 
uh, to use the space that they need. Yeah, that's really lucky, actually, because then you can kind mm -hmm. of make it into like a playground for entrepreneurs that they can test out their ideas and, mm -hmm. and do cool things. So you end mm -hmm. up kind of bringing in the right kind of people because cool stuff is happening there. And right. you're not you don't have to like be so um, focused on getting corporate in there so that you can help pay for the place. Yeah. And I think that's why we've been very fortunate with that, because we're not kind of pressured into that. We're more pressured into achieving our mission statement of creating a good space for entrepreneurs and new ideas to develop. Mm. Um, so what do you see the future for um, Nishiyogi Place being? Mm -hmm. And that's something that, you know, really uh, recently has kind of inspired me of like, what what is the future of Nishiyogi Place? And I've realized a lot more foreigners are coming to Japan wanting to start their own business. And uh, a lot of inbound entrepreneurs need a lot of help. Um, so with my unique international background, I really hope that Nishiyogi Place becomes kind of a home for both international and Japanese entrepreneurs that wants to create it and make it big in Japan. A massive thank you to Higan for coming on the show. You can find out more about Nishiyogi Place and their awesome facilities for students, makers, and freelancers at nishiyogiplace.com. If you have any questions about this episode or about business, freelancing in general, head over to liveworkplayjapan.com forward slash podcast and record a message. I'll be happy to answer on the next podcast. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day.